Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology with the May 2009 podcast. In this podcast, we will be discussing three papers appearing in this month's journal. First, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Lazarus of the Department of Diagnostic Imaging at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University about her and her colleagues' studies on utilization of imaging in pregnant women over a 10-year period. This study documents a rather dramatic rise in CT utilization in pregnant women over the study period. We will also be speaking with Dr. Francesca Chappell of the University of Edinburgh in the Division of Clinical Neurosciences, who with her colleagues published a very extensive review on the accuracy of non-invasive tests for carotid stenosis and individual patient data meta-analysis. In addition to the usual meta-analysis performed, this study was unique in that it included data from a variety of medical audits throughout the United Kingdom. These results are somewhat sobering and they show that when technology such as the non-invasive test for carotid stenosis diffuse widely, the results obtained may not approach that which has been reported in dedicated research centers. Finally, we'll be speaking with Stuart Taylor, who with colleagues at the University College London Hospital published a detailed study on dynamic contrast-enhanced MRI of mural Crohn's disease and its correlation with histological angiogenesis and inflammation. Dr. Taylor and colleagues did a very meticulous job in correlating on a point-to-point basis imaging appearance during a perfusion-related dynamic contrast-enhanced scanning and uh, histopathologic sampling. This is a very exciting work and I believe leads us to some new understandings and insights on Crohn's disease. Hi, this is Debbie Levine. I'm the Senior Deputy Editor at Radiology and I'm talking today with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lazarus, who's an Assistant Professor at Brown University, who's the lead author of an article in Radiology that has to do with a 10-year review of utilization of ionizing radiation um, imaging in pregnant women. This study looked at over 5,000 exams and over 3,000 pregnant patients from the years 1997 to 2006 and found that utilization rates of all radiologic examinations had increased 107%. They also looked at the estimated fetal um, radiation exposure per patients, and of course the largest was for the CT scans, which had a mean of 4.3 milligrays. They found that the largest increase in radiation exposure was from the CT examinations that it increased by 25% per year. So Liz, uh, thank you for being here and thank you for being in our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's clear from your study that imaging in pregnancy has really dramatically increased over the past decade. And given that CT is most dramatically leading this increase in radiation exposure, how do you balance the risk-benefit ratio for an individual who's pregnant, whose physician thinks she might need an abdominal or pelvic CT scan? Well, first of all, we are most concerned about examinations in which the fetus is directly within the beam of radiation. We consider head CT in pregnancy extremely safe And for all of our CTPE exams, which is also another common need for a CT in pregnancy, we shield patients' breast and abdomen. So again, there's minimal 
feel exposure. What we're most concerned about is when the fetus is within the beam of radiation, like you said, an abdomen or pelvis CT. Now, each of these cases we do discuss with the patient's caregiver. We look at the indication for a study and try to gauge the risk of pathology and try to consider whether there are other imaging modalities that can be used. For instance, if the indication is abdominal pain question appendicitis, we are currently recommending MRI. However, if the indication is trauma, we still do resort to the speed and accuracy of a CT. So having shown this increase, do you think that we as radiologists should try to limit the number of CT scans being ordered, or should we just let these uh, happen because they're needed for clinical care? We don't want to dissuade a caregiver from performing what can potentially be a life-saving test. We just want them to be used judiciously. And what we can do is what you and the other people at radiology are trying to do right now, which is educate people about alternatives such as MR imaging for appendicitis and also using ultrasound, for instance, in a trauma setting to look for free fluid. So education is really something that we can do, but I don't think that we should be up necessarily putting a roadblock in front of what can be a very important study. You've brought up ultrasound and MRs, alternate imaging modalities uh, for use in pregnant patients. Why do you think these aren't used more often? As with any new test, there can be resistance to change. What we've noticed is that some of the barriers can be clinicians in particular being concerned about the availability of obtaining an MR and also the time that an MR can take. And we also have radiologist resistance and feeling uncomfortable. But the more of these studies we do, we increase the confidence in both radiologists and our clinicians that these are safe and useful tests. And the more we do, the also the faster we get at performing the study and interpreting it. So I think we need to be uh, promoting these studies, getting more used to it. But on the other hand, if there is a, a need for a CT scan, they can also be used but we try to reduce the um, amount of radiation as much as possible in exposing these patients. So Liz, since you performed this study, have you done anything differently at your institution that you think might actually change the ratio of types of exams? For example, since you showed that CT of the abdomen and pelvis had increased, um, now that you uh, have mentioned doing MR as an alternative imaging, do you think that's had any effect? We have tried to uh, educate our clinicians about the use of these alternative imaging tests with gram rounds and with the uh, research we performed here. And the only thing I can say is that from 2005 to 2006, the final two years in our study, we did notice a decrease in the number of CTs of the abdomen and pelvis. And I would suppose that if we carried the study out to 2007 and 2008, we would likely also have seen a decrease in the number of CTs of the abdomen and pelvis. Well, great. Thank you very much, Liz. Do you have any other comments about your study that you think would be important for our readers and our listeners to know about? No, we were doing this project mainly to increase awareness that this was going on. And these trends certainly mirror the trends in the general population. So that was the main goal of uh, doing this kind of a study. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Dr. Lav, and I am speaking with Francesca Chappelle, who is the first author 
of a um, paper featured in this month's radiology entitled The Accuracy of Non-Invasive Tests for Carotid Stenosis, an Individual Patient Data Meta-Analysis. Maybe you could just summarize your major results and explain some of the motivation for your analysis and deal with these issues of carotid screening tests versus confirmatory tests. We, first of all, you know, as anybody should before commencing a piece of research, we did a systematic review of the literature of diagnostic studies on carotid stenosis. And unfortunately, we found that these studies simply did not report the data in enough detail to answer many of the questions that we had. And one of the questions that we had was the accuracy of the test different according to whether the artery that was being imaged had given rise to symptoms or not. Because I, we've begun to update the literature now, and I think all but four studies in this field have simply lumped together the data from both the ipsilateral and contralateral side. And when we did look to see whether there was a difference between diagnostic accuracy according to whether the artery had given rise to symptoms or not, we found one. And I don't think this is surprising. We know that the arteries are different because one has given rise to a symptom. We also know that symptomatic arteries, uh, sorry, ipsilateral arteries tend to have more disease, which again will change their disease spectrum, which confirms the finding in the article by your editor. And we also know that symptomatic arteries, so the symptomatic stenosis tends to be more ulcerated and have a more irregular appearance, which will also make a difference to its appearance on imaging because for example, CT and MR tend to smooth over, smooth stenosis out. So asymptomatic stenosis, which tends to be smoother anyway, will be less affected by this. So I think there's a whole multitude of reasons to expect sensitivity and specificity to differ according to whether the artery had given rise to symptoms or not. It was contrast-enhanced MRA that was the most accurate, both highest sensitivity and highest specificity for at least yeah. the symptomatic high grade greater than 70% stenosis. Do you think based on what you found in the methodology of these various papers that this was a fair comparison to CTA? And do you think that CTA, which a lot of people are using as a first line modality right now, at least in emergency imaging, is in such a rapid rate of change that it's possible that these results could be different or that the results were not fair based on the older studies? Uh, I think, you know, these technologies are developing all the time. So just until the new CT results have actually been studied, I wouldn't like to say whether they're now better than contrast-enhanced MRA or not. Would you comment on your methodology, which again, I think may be of interest to our readers, mm -hmm in terms of this not being your typical meta-analysis in that you not only used medical audit data, which um, some of which was unpublished, but some of the statistical methods that you used, like the Bland-Butlin method, were also methods that were not well established in the literature and how we handle that. Okay, well the reason for using medical audit data is that we, we felt that if we used data from research studies only, we might be overestimating the accuracies of these tests as they are used in real life by people who might not have a special interest in carotid stenosis, who might not be as motivated as uh, researchers are who undertake diagnostic studies. 
So we felt it important to include audit data if we could. With regard to using the bland Butland method, comparing sensitivity or specificity between the ipsilateral and the contralateral sides is your data here is quite complicated because some patients will have disease on both sides and they will therefore contribute data to both the ipsilateral sensitivity estimate and the contralateral sensitivity estimate. But if one pa- if a patient has disease on one side and no disease on the other side, then one side, the disease side will contribute data to the sensitivity estimate and the non-disease side will contribute data to the specificity estimate. So you have an overlap between patients who contribute data to the sensitivity and an overlap between patients who contribute data to the specificity estimates, but it's not a complete overlap. So standard tests like chi-square or McNamara are not applicable here because chi-square will assume that there is no overlap and McNamara will assume that there is complete overlap. So we had to look beyond the standard tests and fortunately we found that paper by Professor Bland and Barbara Butland looking at this very problem. And it was very, and although this is an unpublished method, when you read the paper, it seems to be very sensible. And we also used a published method, as you know, by Thompson et al., which produced very similar results. And I think if you test things in slightly different ways but end up with the same result, it's it's a very good sign that um, what you're finding in the data is likely to be true. I am joined by Dr. Stuart Taylor, a senior lecturer at University College in London, who with his colleagues in the Department of Radiology have performed a a most interesting study on dynamic contrast-enhanced MRI of mural Crohn's disease and its correlation with histological angiogenesis and inflammation. This, of course, is a, a pilot series consisting of detailed matching of MR perfusion results and histopathologic sampling in 11 patients who underwent a surgical resection for Crohn's disease. Hi, Dr. Taylor. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Your study had a number of really fascinating findings. Most notably, you noted that microvessel permeability increases with increasing disease chronicity, yet microvascular density appeared to be inversely related to mural blood flow. Is that correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. A few questions about the technique you employed. I noted that, of course, since you were relying on surgical resection specimens, you had in your case series only cases that underwent surgery and which, by nature, were advanced. Do you think that this selection bias may have influenced your results? Yeah, I think absolutely. By definition, as you said, we have to have surgical specimens which are histological reference points. And by definition, patients had had Crohn's or the Crohn's was, was severe enough to need an, an operation. Um, I suspect our results do, do reflect the uh, advanced disease stage. However, interesting, when we looked at the, the actual specimens, although you might, for example, expect quite a few patients would have dense, dense fibrotic disease or something like that. In fact, a lot of our specimens are actually acutely inflamed. So I think we were looking at advanced disease. But I don't think we're particularly biased between fibrosis versus acute inflammation. Most of our patients had very, very active disease when they came to the 
uh, operating theatre. Thank you. Your paper ends with kind of a rather provocative uh, statement. Uh, namely, and uh, I'm quoting here, our pilot data provides tacit support that in Crohn's disease, microvessel permeability increases with chronicity and that tissue microvessel density is actually inversely related to mural blood flow, raising the possibility that arteriolar stenosis-driven hypoxia is a major contributor to angiogenesis. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of expand on that and uh, what are sort of the implications of these findings? What other experiments are you and your group contemplating to further develop a better understanding of the relationship of the imaging findings to the uh, process of angiogenesis and fibrosis? And what might be the implications for treatment? That was a lot in one question. Absolutely. Well, I think just to pick up the main, main results of the uh, study was actually led us towards that, that tacit hypothesis we found that microvessel density showed a significant negative correlation with the slope of um, enhancement. And just to go back to a little bit of theory, the slope of enhancement is a, is a semi-quantitative MR parameter, and it's mainly related to the inflow of blood and the permeability surface area product. Now, in most work with an angiogenesis and tumor work, the, they'd find the opposite. So as your more microvessels increase within your tumor, for example, the slope of enhancement should, should go up, the microvessels are more, are more permeable, the blood flow goes up, etc. So to find the opposite, as we do, is quite interesting. And we're hypothesizing that this is due to a reduction in the blood flow to the bowel in Crohn's disease. This is something that has been, has been reported before. If you go back a few years, people have done vascular cast studies on Crohn's resection specimens and found that the vessels are abnormal, they're tapering to the nose. And where the vessels are most abnormal, that corresponds to the worst area of, the, of disease. So I think the hypothesis that hypoxia in part drives cones has been around for a long time. But I think this experiment really is actually maybe, maybe supports that on a, on a functional level. So in terms of taking this forward, I think we have to perhaps try and correlate the microvessels with the, how long the patients have, have, have the disease. We're not sure whether microvessels increase with uh, the patient disease chronicity. We didn't find that in our study, but with a small cohort of 11 patients, maybe we weren't, we weren't powered enough, enough to do that. And I think the other thing is the clinical implications. What is the implication now of using MR perfusion to try and uh, record patients' response to therapy? Uh, example again from oncology, we know that in some tumours, the microvessel density um, actually no normalizes after therapy before it de decreases. So in fact, blood flow perfusion increase in response to, th to therapy. And very interesting to see if we can show the same thing in Crohn's disease. So some of these biological therapies maybe actually work on the vascular tree to normalize blood flow before they actually re reduce the amount of, of inflammation. Well, very good, Dr. Taylor. I, I think this work really is uh, offering us a, a new window to gather understanding uh, about the uh, Crohn's disease. Uh, thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.